family. Uh, so good to be here with you all. As uh, we continue in our sermon series, we uh, are in the midst of a season of prayer as a church. Um, and we're also concurrent with that in the midst of a sermon series entitled Prayers of the Saints, where we are taking a deep look at some of the most prominent prayers found in the scripture to help us to develop and deepen our own prayer lives, but also, more broadly speaking, to just simply deepen our knowledge and love for God and his gospel as he reveals himself in these prayers. Well, uh, two Sundays ago, uh, my father was leaning on a porch rail at his house uh, to kind of get a look at some gutter work that was done and see if the work was good and worked. Uh, And so as he was leaning on the rail, the rail actually gave out. And so he fell from porch height directly onto his left side without any real chance to break his fall. As a result, he collapsed one of his lungs, but we're very, very grateful that given the fact that he's 83 years old, it wasn't as bad as it could have been. And he told me, uh, as I rushed over that morning after it happened, he told me that when he hit the ground, he saw kind of a flash of light, likely from the impact, and told me that at that moment, he thought to himself, so this is how I go. This is how it ends. Well, again, thankfully, he's doing well. Uh, He he was able to get up, and he actually walked upstairs and showered. Um, before I took him to the, to the hospital, but thankfully his body is healing well. But I will say, the fall impacted him more than just physically. It certainly impacted him mentally and emotionally. He's much more aware of how his time on earth really could end at any moment, especially at the age of 83 years old. So when my family and I got to visit, he sat each of my kids down, clearly expressed his love for them, shared with them in the ways he could with his proficiency in English and age-appropriate ways, doing his best, but he shared with them his convictions about what truly matters in life based on the perspective he's gained having lived through and experienced so much in his 83 years. Recognizing your time is short, recognizing your life is coming to a close can absolutely have that effect. Well, in our passage today, David is in that season. He too is nearing the end of his life, and not only is he a father, he's a father to a nation. He's the king of Israel, and he certainly has things he really wants to share. Chapter 8 describes how David assembled all the leaders of Israel to address them. He so desired to build a temple for God, which would finally be a permanent resting place for the Ark of the Covenant, the very presence of God. But God told him, David, it's not going to be you. You are a man of war. You've shed a lot of blood on this earth. Rather, it will be your son, Solomon. Solomon will do it. And so David gives a charge to his son, and he gives a charge to all the leaders to support his son and encourages them to give toward the work of building the temple. And then David prays 
before the entire assembly. And that's the prayer that our brother Silas read for us. And from this prayer, we get a glimpse into King David's perspective. The the wisdom and perspective he's gained from all that he had been through. His perspective of God. His perspective of self. And his perspective on what is of utmost importance. And those will serve as our headings for this message. His perspective of God, perspective of self, and perspective of what is of utmost importance. So before we dive into that, would you bow with me in a word of prayer and let's ask the Lord to open our eyes and our hearts to him. God, we are so thankful that you are present with us now. Present in a way that David would have longed to experience. That we are not separated by a curtain. We are not uh, separated by various uh, parts of a building. We are not limited in when and how we can go to you. Your very presence resides in our hearts. You are here now. And we pray that as your spirit is here, present among us, present within us, that you would indeed speak God, open our ears, open our eyes. Help us to see things that perhaps we've never seen. Help us to see things that perhaps we've seen in the past we need to see again. Help us to see things that perhaps we think we know but need to see in deeper ways. And in the same vein, open our eyes to hear things perhaps for some of us we have never heard. Or for others of us we've perhaps heard but need to hear in a deeper way, and in particular in this season. Do this for your glory. Do this for the sake of your people whom you love and whom you laid down your life for. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So first of all, through this prayer, we see David's perspective on God. So read again uh, verses 10 to 13 with me. Therefore David blessed the Lord in the presence of all the assembly, and David said, Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. Now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. You see, David's prayer begins with this explosion of praise. And he's, it's like he's stacking one superlative on top of another, one after one. He seems to be almost grasping for words to try and describe a God who is so glorious that there aren't actually enough words to do it. It's like, give me another word. Let me think of another word. He is, in a sense, jubilantly frustrated because he so wants to express The greatness of God. He says, yours is the greatness. Meaning, all greatness we see in this created world, whether in nature, whether greatness in people, all greatness are just echoes, are just shadows, are just derivative of the source of ultimate greatness, who is God. 
Yours is the power. His power is unmatched. And the only one who is able to restrain his power is himself when he so chooses to restrain it. Yours is the glory. Since all things originate with him, he deserves all the credit, all the glory for everything. Yours is the victory. His purposes always prevail. He will never fail. Even things that appear as setbacks to us are all part of his sovereign plan to actually propel forward his plan. Yours is the majesty. He is the king of kings. And the weightiness of his presence causes knees to bow. He is not to be taken lightly. As Mr. Beaver said of Aslan, the lion, the Christ figure in the lion, witch in the wardrobe, safe. He's not safe, but he's good. He is no tame being. He is awesome in power and majesty, but he's good. All that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. As Dutch theologian Abraham Kuyper said, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence and even beyond over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. He can literally say of everything, it's mine. All of it is mine. Both riches and honor come from you. In your hand are power and might. And in your hand is to make great and to give strength to all. God is the ultimate giver of all things. Any good, any grace, any success in your life is singularly because of him. To put it simply, it is quite obvious David has a really big view of God, which is actually the right view of God. However, even though we may agree with this description of God on paper, in our lived experience, so often we fail to treat him as such. Every day we are bombarded, discipled, I think is actually a fair term to use. We are discipled by a culture that increasingly denies the greatness of God and rather exalts and preaches the greatness of us, the greatness of self. Authors David Kinneman and David Lyons in their book entitled, what a great title, Good faith, colon, being a Christian when society thinks you're irrelevant and extreme. In this book, they cite a study that says 84% of Americans, 84% of Americans believe that enjoying yourself is the highest goal in life. 86% believe in order to enjoy yourself, you must pursue the things you desire most. 91% affirm the statement to find yourself, look within yourself. So as professor theologian Thaddeus Williams states, one could make the case self-worship is the world's fastest growing religion. And it has, in fact, its own set of commandments. And they could read as follows. 
Commandment one, your mind is the source and standard of truth. Your mind is the source and standard of truth. So, application, no matter what, trust yourself. Hashtag, the answers are within. Second, your emotions are authoritative. Application of the command. So, never question or let anyone else question your feelings. Follow your heart. Hashtag, follow your heart. Third command, you are sovereign. Application. So, flex your omnipotence and bend the universe around your dreams and desires. Hashtag, live your truth. Fourth, you are supreme. Application. Always act according to your chief end to glorify yourself and enjoy yourself forever. Hashtag YOLO. If you don't know what that means, ask someone who looks younger than you. Number five, you are the summum bonum, meaning the standard of goodness. Application, so don't let anyone oppress you with the antiquated notion of being a sinner who needs grace. Hashtag never change. And finally, you are the creator. So application, use that limitless creative power to craft your own identity and purpose. Hashtag authenticity. You hear this pervading our culture, our music, our movies, everything right now. This religion of self-worship is fast-growing, but the fact is it's actually been around in various forms for a very long time. In fact, since the very beginning, Genesis chapter 3. But as popular as it may be, And as appealing as it sounds, especially to this rising generation, it's a dead-end road. It is no coincidence that as so many seek to find meaning in self, satisfaction in self, goodness in self, glory in self, the rates of depression, anxiety, and all manner of mental health problems are skyrocketing. Not a coincidence. Albert Einstein said, a person first starts to live when he can live outside himself. A person first starts to live when he can live outside himself. He is on to something here that resonates with biblical truth. We are not meant to live our lives with self at the center expecting everyone and everything to orbit around us. Such a life will implode on itself. Instead, we're meant to orbit around the one who truly is at the center of all things, and the more we fix our eyes on him and acknowledge his greatness rather than our own, in a strange, counterintuitive way, It's as we live in self-forgetful, reverent awe of God, that's when you actually experience transcendent joy, transcendent peace, transcendent fulfillment. It's how we are wired. We experience hints of this in our everyday life. I think a lot of us will be able to identify with this during this COVID season. 
past two years, but think about when you're just struggling. When you're just struggling with negative thoughts, perhaps depression, when you're just in a bad spot mentally, and you're just in your room, and you're just physically in your room, but also metaphorically, you're just in your own head. And you're just kind of rehearsing things and thinking about this and thinking about that and getting angry and getting sad and getting upset and just kind of stuck in there in your own head. And you can actually feel yourself spiraling. But isn't it interesting? Simply going outside and especially looking at something beautiful and awe-inspiring. Going to the beach and just standing before a vast ocean, going for a hike through the mountains, forest of trees surrounding you, gazing at a night sky and countless stars, or as many as we can see in Philly at least, something bigger than yourself that stirs awe up in you. As you do that, you ever notice it actually like lifts you. The problems don't seem as big. Your despair doesn't feel as deep. And I think in a small way, what that's actually pointing to is how we've been wired by God. That we really begin to live when we get outside of ourselves and gaze upon the God who is there. Perhaps one very practical antidote or, or counter to the gravitational pull of our self-worshipping society is, in fact, how you approach prayer. So often we spend far too little time doing what David actually does here, and that is this, simply praising God for who he is. There's an acronym for prayer to help guide prayer that a lot of you may be familiar with, ACTS. Right? Helpful acronym, which stands for these are the elements we should always remind ourselves in, in a healthy prayer life. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. Adoration is simply praising God, declaring as David does right here. How good he is, how powerful he is, how vast he is. Confession, thanksgiving, thank him, and supplication, requests, needs. I would guess for most people... There may be some C and a ton of S. Help me with this. I need this. Please help me with this. Please allow this to happen. But a disproportionately little amount of adoration and thanksgiving. And you see, the danger is that if you're only confessing and asking all the time, that could devolve into a rather self-centered approach to God. As if he exists to simply assuage my guilt, get rid of this guilt, and, all right, here's what I need. Perhaps a more balanced prayer life would lead to a more balanced life, broadly speaking. Helping to ensure we're orbited around not ourselves, but around our Savior. Second. In this prayer, we see David's perspective of self, verses 14 to 16. But who am I and what is my people that we should be able to thus to offer willingly? For all things come from you and of your own have we given you. 
For we are strangers before you and sojourners as all our fathers were. Our days on the earth are like a shadow. There's no abiding. O Lord our God, all this abundance that we have provided for building you a house for your holy name comes from your hand and all is your own. Even though Solomon would be the one to actually build the temple, David prepared everything he possibly could. Sets aside massive amounts of money and materials. We're talking current times if you were to equate in the billions. And not only out of the nation's treasury, but his own wealth. He emptied his own pockets, his own coffers. And as a result of his own example, going above and beyond what he needed to, sacrificially giving all the leaders, followed his lead, and gave in radically generous ways. But here in his prayer, we see how David views all of this. There is no patting himself on the back. Instead, there is genuine humility. Because he recognizes all that he had, all that he was able to give came from God in the first place. Clearly, he says it, all things come from you, and of your own have we given you. All this abundance that we have provided for building you a house for your holy name comes from your hand. It's all your own. He uses the term sojourners, which describes someone who is entirely dependent on the help of others. Entirely dependent on others to help them out, to provide for them, to give them a house, shelter, clothing. That's how David saw himself. He's the richest man in that area of the world, the known world at that time, and he saw himself as ultimately a sojourner in utter need of everything. He saw himself as ultimately a recipient, and he saw God as ultimately the giver. Do we share, brothers and sisters, this view with him? Because it is the right view. When I was little, I did not get an allowance. My allowance was, we allow you to live in this house. That's your allowance. <laughs> kind of take the same approach today. Nah. Um, but my mom would give me, time to time, when it was Father's Day, my dad's birthday, she'd give me some money and say, hey, go get your dad a birthday card. Oh, that's right. Go get him a birthday card. And sure, I would go to the store and try my best to pick a nice card or something meaningful. But the fact was, the card I gave him was paid for by him in the first place. And so it is with us. Just as misdirected as it would be for me to pat myself on the back for the amazing card I got my dad with his own money... Whatever we give to God, whatever we give to God, giving Him our time, giving Him our treasure, giving Him our talents, it all came from Him in the first place. There is no room for boasting. Rather, in humble gratitude, we simply thank the giver. 
In fact, it's not just what we give. Notice what David says. Who am I and what is my people? That we should be able thus to offer willingly. So again, it's not just what they gave. Even our willingness to give it is also enabled by God. Because as we said earlier, left to ourselves, the original condition of our hearts, apart from the grace of God working, is to become self-worshippers. David also prays, our days on the earth are like a shadow. There's no abiding. You see, David recognizes how small, how fleeting we really are. But again, you see humble gratitude. Who am I? Who are we that this great God would invite us and enable us to partake in the building of his temple, his house, his very presence that would reflect the glory of God to the nations? Who am I? Who are we that we get to be part of this? Perhaps as modern folks, we can appreciate our small, fleeting lives in a different way than David could. I'm sure many of us are aware of how NASA just released images from the James Webb Telescope, which is able to put out far better, deeper images into space, clearer images than its predecessor, the Hubble. And one of the images images of a galaxy cluster called SMACS, SMACS, I don't know if they, they do that, but 0723 reveals in that little image thousands of galaxies. And all of those galaxies are actually found, found in what is compared to a tiny speck of sky comparable to a a single grain of sand, if you were to put it on your finger at arm's length, that single grain of sky against the rest, uh, sand against the rest of the sky is the equivalent of how much of the universe you see. In that dot are thousands of galaxies. And I've seen numerous comments by all kinds of people, faith, unbelief, all saying and expressing the same thing. We are so small. I wrote, I saw one guy, but why are we even here? Why are we alive? I mean, you really come face to face with your smallness. Astronomer Carl Sagan, who, the late Carl Sagan, uh, in reference to a satellite image of Earth from three billion miles away, this was several years ago, when it was a grainier image, in fact. But when he saw that image, he was so moved by it, he writes reflections in this book entitled, A Pale Blue Dot. Because that's what Earth looks like from three billion miles away. It's this tiny little speck amidst the sun rays beaming down. He writes this, look again at the dot. That's here. That's home. That's us. On it, everyone you love, everyone you know, 
everyone you've ever heard of, every human being who ever was, lived out their lives. The aggregate of our joy and suffering, thousands of confident religions, ideologies, and economic doctrine, every hunter and forager, every hero and coward, every creator and destroyer of civilization, every king and peasant, every young couple in love, every mother and father, hopeful child inventor and explorer, every teacher of morals, every corrupt politician, every superstar, every supreme leader, every saint and sinner in the history of our species live there on a moat of dust suspended in a sunbeam. The earth is a very small stage in a vast cosmic arena. Our posturing, our imagined self-importance, the delusions that we have some privileged position in the universe are challenged by this point of pale light. We are, as Sagan so eloquently puts, small and fleeting indeed. Yet, contrary to what he says, we actually do have a privileged position in the universe given by the one who, in fact, created all of this. We have been made in the image of God, and though our lives on this pale blue dot are fleeting indeed, we have been given the privilege, privilege of, and gifted with time, with talents, with treasure, for eternally consequential work. A greater work, in fact, than helping build a temple. For this magnificent temple Solomon built would be torn down brick by brick, burned and destroyed. But the temple was only meant to be a temporary dwelling of God. Because God can't ultimately be contained in a building. God, in fact... The temple was, in fact, pointing to the day when God would dwell among us in the flesh, in the person of Jesus Christ. And after his life, death, and resurrection, he ascends, pours out his spirit, and guess what? We are now the dwelling of God. Each of you who have put your faith in Christ, are literally a living stone, a spiritual house. And as you and I go forth into our city, into our communities, into our streets and schools and workplaces, you bring the presence of God with you. He dwells in you. And like the temple, you as a living stone, reflect that glory to the world. And he invites you in with the time that he's given you, in this moment that he's placed you in, with the time, talents, and treasure all from his hand. He says, join me. Be an agent of hope, an agent of healing, a herald of the good news, until you leave this pale blue dot or Jesus returns to it.
whichever happens first. How privileged we are. How graced we are with such a privilege. Lastly, we see David's perspective on what is of utmost importance. Verses 17 to 19, I think the way I'm going to read this will probably make clear what is of utmost importance. I know, my God, that you test the heart and have pleasure in uprightness, in the uprightness of my heart. I have freely offered all these things, and now I've seen your people who are present here offering freely and joyously to you. O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, our fathers, keep forever such purposes and thoughts in the hearts of your people. Direct their hearts towards you. Grant to Solomon, my son, a whole heart that he may keep your commandments, your testimonies, and your statutes, performing all, and that he may build the palace for which I have made provision. It should be pretty clear. What David regards of utmost importance is not simply what we offer to God, how much we offer to God, or that we offered anything. But David recognized what God cares about most is the heart. The heart with which we offer it. That's why in the eyes of Jesus, the widow who just put two little coins gave far more than the rich man. In fact, God chose him, David, as a king above all of his brothers who are far more outwardly impressive. Why? Why, David? Because God cares about the heart. David sought to live as a man after God's own heart. And even after his massive failure and sin against Uriah and Bathsheba, a direct result of letting his heart wander, he writes in Psalm 51, 16, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. You see, David knew God wasn't interested in just empty, perfunctory, obligatory, purely external action. None of that matters. God wanted David's heart. For David to return wholeheartedly to God. David prayed his son Solomon would follow the Lord wholeheartedly. And the message must have at least stuck for a little bit because Solomon himself wrote Proverbs 4.23, Keep your heart, guard it with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. David understood, Solomon understood, because God had instructed them, whatever you love, whatever you treasure, whatever you trust most, whatever, in other words, has your heart, will control your life. And it is God who deserves the utmost allegiance of our hearts. Friends, let me ask you this morning, this simple question of utmost importance. For those of you who have professed faith, where is your heart this morning? 
as you sing these songs, as you recite these prayers, as you listen to this word, where is your heart? As you serve in whatever capacity you are serving, where is your heart? Could it be said of some of us, as it was said of the people in Isaiah's time, they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Are you settling for, metaphorically speaking, offering sacrifices, but your heart isn't in it? If that's you, you are certainly not alone. You have company in these pews, on this stage, and in these pages. Because even the one known as the man after God's own heart, let his heart run after others. Solomon, who wrote about the importance of guarding his heart, failed to guard his own. Kind of one of those situations of do, what I, do as I say, not as I do. And really... This has been the history of all God's people. Incessantly wandering again and again. You see, but our hope is not found in ourselves getting it right one day. That day is not going to happen in your own strength. Remember in the prayer, David says, the willingness... The willingness to give wholeheartedly, the willingness to love you in this way has to come from you. I can't even love you as you deserve to be loved. It's God who must stir up that willingness in us. And how does he do it? We'll take a step back and consider how was David and the entire nation stirred up to wholehearted commitment, to sacrificial giving. What was going on there? Well, we see it in the prayer. There was an honest and real recognition. God is so much greater than we realize. And likewise, at the same time, there was an honest and very real recognition. They owned, and I am so unworthy. Who am I? He doesn't owe me anything. In fact, the truth of the scripture is what he owes us is judgment. And this is why it's not even completely accurate to say God loves us unconditionally. Unconditionally is without conditions. God rather loves us contra-conditionally. Contrary to what we deserve. Because though he is at the center, high and lifted up, so often, perhaps daily, we seek to dethrone him. But what stirred up the people of God in that moment, what stirred up David in that moment was a recognition of how great God is, a recognition of how unworthy we are. But then, the grace of God poured out for them. He did not treat them as they deserved. And you see, every time they came to that temple that they were going to build, and they put their hand on an animal, and they had to go through the messy thing of hearing those things scream out and bleed out. That was a reminder to them, this is what your sins deserve, but this is not what you will suffer. 
you will only know my love. That is grace. And of course, we know all those animals were simply pointing to the ultimate sacrifice of God. Another son of David. A son to whom David would call my Lord. Because not only did he come from the line of David, he came, in fact, from above. The eternal son of God. Yes, the one of whom David said, yours is the greatness, yours is the power, yours is the majesty, who flung those 10,000 galaxies, galaxies into space with a word. That's who he is. And yet he willingly chose to contain himself to this pale blue dot in frail human flesh to take the punishment we deserve for our insubordination to God. And for all who trust that, Here's how revival happens in your heart. It's always the same thing. It's been that way from the beginning till today. A genuine recognition of the glory and worth and greatness of God. A genuine recognition of what your sins deserve and how unworthy and broken you are. And a genuine recognition of the grace God has poured out in Jesus. That's how revival happens in a person's heart. That's how revival has happened in nations. It's when those three truths come together. Perhaps if you find yourself today with a cold, dead heart, you know, when, when we reverse the order, God, not so great, really not that impressive, and I'm not that bad, what that does is it shrinks the grace of God to the point where you're not amazed anymore. And so you're either bored with him or you're begrudgingly obeying the older brother. Look at all this good I do for you. You owe me. You owe me one God. But when there's a genuine recognition, man, he is far greater and holier than I realized. I'm far worse than I realized. Who am I? And yet he willingly emptied himself from me. That's what melts the heart again. To make you the kind of person that doesn't simply say, I guess I got to do these things. I have to obey. I have to. You become the kind of person as we see here in David and amongst this generation at this moment in time. We get to. What a privilege that we get to. Let's pray. We're going to close by coming to the table this morning. And feeding on the grace of Christ through these elements. But before we do that, if I could just give you all a moment to pause and consider what we heard this morning. Again, let's start with that simple question. Where is your heart? Do you find in there some, frankly, just honestly, boredom with God? Or on the flip side, begrudging attitude. Well, if so, could it be that one of those legs of the stool are missing, have atrophied, and therefore so has your heart for God? Can we come back to that place this morning? Because, you know, we always want some new slick formula. 
What's a new program I can join? What's a new, give me some new app. Give me some new uh, article to read. (laughs) It's always the same thing. Humble yourself. Draw near to him. He will draw near to you. Humbly confess, I can't even love you in the way that you deserve to be loved. I'm frankly bored of you, God. I'm struggling with perhaps bitterness even towards you. Humble yourself and ask the Holy Spirit to do what only he can do. Open your blind eyes. Open your stopped up ears. Because the good news of the gospel is anything but boring. It's literally changed and is changing the world. The fault is not in the gospel. The fault is something going on between our ears and in our chest. But we are not without hope. Because you see, more than even you, he wants so much for you. So much more for you. So let's invite the Holy Spirit to allow these truths that perhaps we've heard a million times to really sink in a way that brings revival, renewal to bored and begrudging hearts. Let's sincerely, not perfunctory, sincerely Bring your heart to God for a broken spirit and a contrite heart. He will not deny.